Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! The climate crisis, the curtailment of reproductive rights, authoritarianism, these threats aren't looming. They're here now. If you believe Democracy Now!'s reporting on these issues is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20. Go to democracynow.org to make your donation right away. Oh, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Latino history is American history. And to tell that full story and tell a full history, we need to acknowledge our colonial past. As the nation marks Hispanic Heritage Month, we look at a brewing controversy over the creation of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino. We'll speak to two historians who've been hired to create a temporary exhibition about Latino civil rights of the 1960s. But the museum shelved the exhibit after coming under criticism by conservative Latinos. Instead, the museum is now working on an exhibit about salsa music. But first, Chilean President Gabriel Boric made a historic trip to Washington, D.C. over the weekend to mark the 50th anniversary of the U.S.-backed coup in Chile. Boric visited the site in Washington, D.C., where in 1976, agents of the Pinochet dictatorship assassinated the former Chilean diplomat Orlando Letelier and his colleague Ronnie Moffat of the Institute for Policy Studies. And when some people dare to ask the victims to silence their grief, to turn the page, I would humbly like to tell them, having spoken to many of those victims, that this reconciliation is only possible with truth and justice, not with forgetting. We'll speak to Orlando Letelier's son, Juan Pablo Letelier, a former state senator in Chile. He's just returned to Santiago from Washington, D.C. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. At least 20 people were killed, nearly 300 others hospitalized Monday as an explosion ripped through a fuel depot for refugees in the South Caucasus territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. It's not clear what caused the blast, which added to the misery of tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians fleeing the disputed territory one week after it was seized by Azerbaijan. Armenian officials report nearly 14,000 of Nagorno-Karabakh's 120,000 residents had fled to Armenia as of Tuesday morning. Thousands remain without food, shelter and clean sources of drinking water. We don't know what happens to us next. We don't know what the government has in store for us. There is not a single chance to go back. If there were chances, we would not leave in the first place. It is very dangerous there. On Monday, representatives of Karabakh Armenians met with Azerbaijani officials for a second round of peace talks. No details about the meeting were made public. In Baku, Azerbaijan's president, Ilham Aliyev, pledged his government would ensure the security of everyone in Nagorno-Karabakh, countering Armenia's claims that ethnic cleansing is underway. 
The people living in the Karabakh region are Azerbaijan citizens regardless of their nationality. Their safety, security, well-being will be ensured by the state of Azerbaijan. Diplomatic officials from Armenia and Azerbaijan are in the Belgian capital of Brussels today to prepare for October 5th peace talks. The summit will include the leaders of France, Germany and the European Council. Ukrainian officials say Russian airstrikes and artillery fire killed six people and destroyed grain storage infrastructure at the Black Sea port of Odessa Monday. The damage further degrades Ukraine's abilities to export food and fertilizer to world markets two months after Russia withdrew from a deal that granted safe package to agricultural exports. Monday's attacks came as Ukraine's military said it's confirmed the deaths of the top commander of Russia's Black Sea fleet, along with 33 other officers in a Ukrainian missile attack on Russian-occupied Crimea last week. The Kremlin claims just one member of the Russian military is missing after the attack. Meanwhile, the United Nations Independent Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine says investigators have found continued evidence of war crimes committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. The commission's chair, Eric Moz, testified to the U.N. Human Rights Commission in Geneva Monday. The use of torture by Russian armed forces in areas under their control has been widespread and systematic. Further, the Commission has found that in the Kherson region, Russian soldiers raped and committed sexual violence against women of ages ranging from 19 to 83 years, often together with threats of commission or other violations. In immigration news, Mexico has accepted demands from the Biden administration to start deporting migrants who are apprehended in northern Mexico border cities back to their home countries. Mexico's government has also agreed to enforce over a dozen policies to block migrants and asylum seekers from reaching the United States. This comes as U.S. immigration officials have reported a sharp increase in the number of people attempting to cross the U.S.-Mexico border in recent weeks as thousands seek protection from violence, conflict, extreme poverty and the impacts of the climate crisis. The mayor of El Paso, Texas, has said his city is at a breaking point as shelters are at capacity, forcing many asylum seekers onto the streets. Another Texas border city, Eagle Pass, has extended its state of emergency declaration as thousands of asylum seekers have arrived in recent days. Meanwhile, immigration rights advocates have denounced the Biden administration for deploying more military personnel to the southern border and not prioritizing humanitarian relief or addressing the massive backlogs, greatly delaying the processing of asylum and immigration cases. A recent report by Syracuse University found a backlog of some 2.6 million cases in U.S. immigration courts. New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez says he will not resign and will seek to clear his name after he and his wife were indicted Friday on federal bribery charges. On Monday, the embattled Democrat said nearly a half million dollars in cash found in his New Jersey home after a raid was being stored for emergency personal use. Menendez did not mention the gold bars and Mercedes Benz also seized by federal agents, nor did he answer questions from reporters. I recognize uh, this will be the biggest fight uh, yet, but as I have stated throughout this whole process, I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator.
On Monday, two more Democratic senators, Sherrod Brown of Ohio and Peter Welch of Vermont, called for Menendez to step down. They joined Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, whose campaign promised to return $5,000 in contributions from a political action committee tied to Senator Menendez in, quote, envelopes stuffed with $100 bills, unquote. Two people have announced they're running against Menendez in next year's election. New Jersey Congressmember Andy Kim and community activist Lawrence Hamm, who's the chair of the People's Organization for Progress. Former President Donald Trump has called for the outgoing chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, to be put to death. Trump made the remark Monday on a social media platform, Truth Social, accusing Milley of secretly speaking to China's government behind his back in the final months of his administration. Trump wrote, quote, this is an act so egregious that in times gone by, the punishment would have been death. In Georgia, the Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee has granted a request by prosecutors to restrict the release of personal information about jurors in the election interference case against former President Trump and 18 co-defendants. District Attorney Fannie Willis requested additional protections after members of the grand jury who brought the indictments had their home addresses, phone numbers and other personal information posted online, leading to threats and harassment. Willis and members of her team all also received death threats. In Colorado, a judge overseeing a case seeking to bar Donald Trump from the 2024 presidential ballot has issued a protective order barring threats and intimidation. Crew, that's Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, argues Trump is disqualified under a clause of the 14th Amendment that prohibits people from holding office if they've, quote, engaged in insurrection against the United States. Meanwhile, Trump's presidential campaign is denying the former president purchased a Glock pistol during a visit to a gun store in South Carolina Monday. Video widely shared on social media shows Trump admiring the weapon, which was decorated with Trump's name and likeness, and saying he'd like to buy it. Federal law bars the sale of firearms to people who are under indictment for crimes carrying sentences of more than a year, which would include Trump. This comes days after President Biden unveiled a new White House Office of Gun Violence Protect Prevention. After every mass shooting, we hear a simple message, the same message all over the country. And I've been to every mass shooting. Do something. Please do something. Do something to prevent the tragedies and leave behind survivors who will always carry the physical and emotional scars. The Gun Violence Archive reports nearly 32,000 people across the United States have died from firearms so far this year. 519 people have been killed in mass shootings. Microsoft is on track to complete the largest ever merger of technology firms after British regulators approved its $69 billion purchase of the video game maker Activision Blizzard. This comes after a federal judge in July refused the Biden administration's request to issue a temporary injunction stopping the merger, citing antitrust laws. The Federal Trade Commission argued the merger would hurt competition in the video game industry. Members of SAG-AFTRA have voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike against video game companies. Union negotiators representing about 2,600 performers have been in negotiations for a new interactive media agreement for nearly a year without success. They're seeking wage increases to make up for high inflation and want guarantees against the unregulated use of artificial intelligence. 
The strike authorization comes as Hollywood actors remain on strike, even after major studios reached a tentative agreement Sunday with screenwriters in the Writers Guild of America. The WGA has paused picketing but remains on strike pending ratification of the contract. WGA leaders are scheduled to vote on the agreement today. Once it's approved, the contract will be made available to about 11,000 union writers to vote on. No talks are currently scheduled between Hollywood studios and SAG-AFTRA actors who've been on strike since July. Libya's top prosecutor ordered the arrest of eight Libyan officials as part of the investigation into the collapse of two dams in the eastern port city of Derna earlier this month. The disaster killed thousands of people after torrential rains triggered by Storm Daniel triggered tsunami-level floods that decimated entire neighborhoods. Thousands of survivors of the floods have held recent protests demanding accountability from government officials as they reportedly ignored mounting warnings that if the dams were not urgently maintained, Derna faced a potential catastrophe. In Canada, hundreds of Sikh community members gathered outside Indian consulates and diplomatic missions across multiple Canadian cities Monday, angered by Canadian government accusations that the government of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi was directly involved in the assassination of the prominent Canadian Sikh separatist leader Hardeep Singh Nijjar in June. Nijjar was killed outside a temple in British Columbia. The actions came one week after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said to Parliament there's credible evidence gathered by domestic intelligence linking the Indian government to Niger's murder. This is one of the protesters in Toronto. We would like the Canadian government to completely abolish their embassy and remove it from here because they've already broken international law. They've compromised the safety and sovereignty of Canadians. And the longer they're here, who knows who they're targeting next? India chose violence. India chose to murder a Canadian on Canadian soil, and they will pay the price. India has said the accusations are absurd. And an investigation is underway after at least one Molotov cocktail was thrown at the Cuban embassy in Washington, D.C. Sunday. Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez said on social media the Cuban embassy, quote, was the target of a terrorist attack. No one was injured. The building didn't receive significant damage. There have been no arrests so far. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, the Chilean president, Gabriel Boric, made an historic trip to Washington, D.C. over the weekend to mark the 50th anniversary of the U.S. back coup in Chile and the 1976 assassination on U.S. soil of former Chilean diplomat Orlando Letelier and his colleague Ronnie Moffat of the Institute for Policy Studies, killed by agents of the Pinochet dictatorship. Stay with us.
de fondo del pueblo ha surgido una voz de justicia social. Workers to Power from Paradon Records Chile, Songs for the Resistance. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show with our ongoing coverage of events marking the 50th anniversary of the other September 11th. That's September 11th, 1973 when the U.S.-backed military coup in Chile unfolded that ousted the democratically elected president, Salvador Ende. He died in the palace that day and led to a 17-year repressive dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet. On Saturday, the Chilean president, Gabriel Boric, made a historic trip to Washington, D.C., to visit the site where, on September 21, 1976, agents of the Pinochet regime assassinated former Chilean diplomat Orlando Letelier and his colleague Ronnie Moffat of the Institute for Policy Studies for their work to defend democracy in Chile. Letelier had served as Chile's Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Interior and Defense Minister under Salvador Allende. At the time he was murdered, he was director of the Transnational Institute at IPS, a progressive think tank. This is the late filmmaker and author Saul Landau in a video produced by IPS describing the attack and his close friend, Orlando Letelier. He wanted to work, of course, to bring democracy back to Chile and on human rights in general. And both Mark Raskin and Dick Barnett, who were the co-directors of IPS, thought it was a good idea. And we hired him. He didn't stay all that long because Pinochet blamed him for several of the bad things that were happening to Chile as a result of Pinochet's human rights violations. The Kennedy Amendment, which cut off all arms sales and shipments to Chile. And then the Harkin Amendment, which cut off all the rest except for humanitarian aid. And although Orlando was not responsible for either one of these, Pinochet in his narrow-shaped brain, of course, blamed him. And he ordered the head of the secret police, Manuel Contreras, who was a colonel, to do the job. Contreras, in turn, picked Michael Townley to organize the mission. Nobody who was ever involved with these two people will or could ever forget this horrible day. It was, I remember, a warm, slightly drizzly morning. Orlando's car came to rest just here at the embassy doorstep. Townley had put the bomb at a place in the I-beam where the bomb would blow straight up. Ronnie was sitting in the seat next to him and just took a piece of metal in the throat and that wiped her out. I just felt an overwhelming sense of sorrow and sadness, but I also felt that we have got to get the people who did this. And there was no question in my mind that the only possible suspect was named Augusto Pinochet. But Pinochet never got his name on that indictment with the signature of the U.S. attorney. And that was a tragic blow to a American justice. That was Saul Landau in a film produced by the Institute for Policy Studies, IPS, where Orlando Letelier was working when he was assassinated. The IPS was co-founded by Marcus Raskin, father 
of Democratic Congress member from Maryland, Jamie Raskin, who addressed the memorial ceremony Saturday at the site of the 1976 assassination in Sheridan Circle in D.C. The event took place a couple of days after independent Senator Bernie Sanders joined Democratic Congress members Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and others to introduce a congressional resolution apologizing for the U.S. role in the 1973 coup and calling for further declassification of U.S records for related events. Congressmember Raskin spoke after he presented a copy of the resolution to Chilean President Boric. I was 13 years old when Orlando and Ronnie were killed, right here. And I had a message that came to school saying that I should come right home after school. And I was on the bus coming just, well, uh, around here in circle. Um, and we were stuck for several hours in traffic because it was still a crime scene um, at that point, and none of us knew what had happened and what was going on. It was before cell phones took place. But I remember, I remember going to see Michael Moffat that night um, with my parents and um, with the Barnetts, and, uh, and I remember Michael uh, reconstructing the details of what had taken place um, in describing the horror of the explosion in the car. Um, and um, uh, I remember everybody just weeping and not sleeping for days uh, at the loss of, uh, of Orlando, who everybody loved, and Ronnie, who everybody loved, who often babysat for me and for uh, my siblings. And I remember my dad, and I remember Dick Burnett, and Saul Landau, and the other fellows holding a press conference and declaring that whatever else would happen, IPS would find the killers of their colleagues and see that justice was done. And That's Congressmember Jamie Raskin, who was also referring to Michael Moffat, who was the husband, in the car, though not killed, along with Ronnie Moffat and Orlando Letelier. Also there Saturday, with two of Orlando Letelier's sons, including Juan Pablo Letelier, a former member of the Chilean Senate, who will join us in a minute from Santiago. This is what he said Saturday. Dear friends, this is a site of cultural memory. This is a memory site that has been built during the last 47 years, led by the IPS. This has been a, a place where the Ledlier Moffat Fund, where Fabulous voices have built a memory site. Hands, struggles, who have built what is here today. We as a family are, are full of gratitude. After Orlando Letelier's son spoke on Saturday, the Chilean president, Gabriel Boric, addressed the crowd. He began in English. I have been to a lot of acts of remembrance and um, I, I must confess that I'm, I'm really shaking now after hearing um, Orlando Sanz after hearing that incredible speech Jamie Raskin 
wherever you are. Oh, there you are. Um, after feeling this energy here, the Washington crying, but all of us here gathered happy and celebrating life, not death. That's an inequivocal way to say that we won. That Orlando's and Ronnie's ideals won. And we are very proud of us, of that. And my generation, I was born 10 years after Orlando was killed. My generation is deeply moved and deeply grateful of the thought they gave, of the life they, they gave to us. As Chilean President Gabriel Boric continued his address, he transitioned to Spanish. Coup d'etats are never inevitable. There will always, always be a space for dialogue, for conversation, for respect of different opinions. Even today, there are many who continue with impunity. And when some people dare to ask the victims to silence their grief, to turn the page, I would humbly like to tell them, having spoken to many of those victims, that this reconciliation is only possible with truth and justice, not with forgetting, and with the profound agreement and deep conviction that this can never happen again. We really expect that the U.S. has a reflection a more deep reflection, and I know that you are doing that, but there's a more deeper reflection on, on what they pushed in Chile. And not only in Chile, in other places in Latin America. That was Chilean President Gabriel Boric speaking Saturday in Washington, D.C., at the site of Orlando Letelier and Ronnie Moffat's assassination. For more, we're joined by Juan Pablo Letelier member of the Chilean House and Senate for 32 years, was in high school when his father, Orlando Letelier, was assassinated with U.S. activist Ronnie Moffat in that car bombing on Embassy Row, September 21, 1976. Letelier's Socialist Party is also part of President Boric's coalition, joining us now from Santiago, Chile. Um, still, after all of these years, our condolences to you, your family, your country, Juan Pablo Letelier. Thank you very much. So and thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. If you can talk about, you know, we heard Congressman Raskin talking about him being 13 years old when your dad was assassinated. Can you talk about your experience at that time? Your father was the Chilean ambassador to the United States uh, until 1973, um, then moved on to be leading critic outside Chile of Augusto Pinochet before he was murdered. Talk about where you were. I was at um, high school. I was, we used to live in Bethesda, Maryland. Went to Walt Whitman High School. I was a senior. I was called over to the dean's office or to the principal's office. And when I got there, he mentioned to me that my father had been in an accident. He didn't give me more details. He only mentioned that my aunt was going to come by to pick me up. A little while after she did, Two of my brothers were in the car with her. 
I got in the car, sat in the back seat with one of my brothers, Francisco, who asked me if I knew what had happened. And I told him that I did not. And he simply said, they put a bomb in dad's car. They put a bomb in dad's car. We drove down to or into D.C. to George Washington Hospital. We were listening to news uh, briefs or reports of all types, different information, confusing information. One person dead, two persons dead, no information. Um, when we got to the hospital, there was a lot of people, a lot of press, a lot of confusion. We were kind of hustled in and suddenly we we were in a room with my mother. She came to us. She hugged the three of us that were there. And what she said was, the only thing I ask of all of you is that after all this is over, you won't hate anybody. That was her way of telling us that my father was dead. And Juan Pablo Letelier, can you talk about the fight afterwards to... to, uh, to uh justice for the people responsible and especially the long quest to hold uh, Pinochet directly responsible? This has been a very long, long fight. The Institute for Policy Studies, Saul Landau, along with a journalist, John Dingus, did a big investigation. They searched for information. They picked up information. The FBI also did its effort. There was a trial initially in the U.S. around 78, I will say, which uh, unfortunately, despite all the information being available, they were it was considered a mistrial, amazingly, where um, the Cubans who um, lived in the U.S., who collaborated with Pinochet's um, police or secret police with the DINA, they were off the hook, unfortunately. They have been identified. Um, this was a big effort through many years. Many human rights workers um, kept struggling to get justice done. Finally, I'd say thanks to many people who pushed this effort. Once we recovered democracy in Chile in 1990s, um, during the second democratic government we had, just on that occasion, the head of the Chilean secret police, Manuel Contreras, and another collaborator, Pedro Pinoza Bravo, were sentenced and condemned. Previously, the agent who went to the U.S. had gone into a plea bargaining agreement. He had been tried in the U.S. He spent barely five years in jail or seven years after this terrorist attempt in Washington, D.C., the first one that had occurred till then on U.S. soil, where an American citizen was also assassinated along with my father, Ronnie Carpen Moffitt. Um, but we have been able to advance justice. There are things that are pending. And in the search of that information, there have been wonderful people, incredible people who have struggled in Chile and in the U.S. to get more truth. There's been a wonderful person working at, at the National Archives Project, Peter Kornblum, people at the IPS, human rights workers, as I have said in the U.S., who has helped us get more information. There's still some facts which are pending, and we uh, have the confidence that truth will prevail. 
And we also are very satisfied, allow me to say it, that a group of congressional uh, reps, um, senators, uh, House of Representatives have forward a motion to get history straight as um, there always were a group of senators and reps who accompanied the cause of democracy in Chile, what is about to be voted in these next days also as part of this administration of justice and creating or getting facts correct. And could you talk about the challenges still facing Chile's Congress and President Boric, the importance of him uh, part- participating uh, in the event uh, in Washington? Look, uh, President Boric, as he said when he was there, shared, shared in circle, was born 10 years after my father's assassination. He is the youngest president we have had in Chile. He is a man who is extremely committed to human rights in Chile and abroad. He has the conviction that no democratic society can exist without full respect of human rights, not mattering if it's a government of uh, one political tendency or another, it can be from the right, it can be from the left, but human rights have to be always upheld. He has stated and maintained that position internationally regarding cases like in Nicaragua or Venezuela or elsewhere. And he has also been very committed to what is happening in Chile in the um, tasks which are still pending. He has uh, announced an initiative that is called in Chile Plan Nacional de Búsqueda. It's a national state guaranteed project or initiative where the government authorities and agencies have the legal obligation to aid all relatives of those who were detained and disappeared and whose bodies have still not appeared. It's more than 1,100 persons. The state has the obligation to help find closure for these families with more truth and more justice. He's a president who is extremely committed with human rights And we as a family are in particular extremely grateful. I'm sure the um, Carpen Moffat family feels the same, that he has accompanied us or he would have accompanied us last Saturday in an incredible and very uh, um, emotive activity on Sheridan Circle. You were referencing the apology resolution and uh, in the United States um, Congress. Talk more about what that resolution, if passed, the one that Bernie Sanders and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and others is supporting, what would that mean? And how did what happened 50 years ago and 47 years ago in the case of the assassination of your father um, shape Chile today? Juan Pablo Letelier. Let let me state the following. Church report, the Congressional Church report, um, which was worked through with a number of uh, senators in the U.S. Congress after the military coup in Chile, got part of the facts straight. It stated clearly that there was covert action by the Nixon government against Allende's um, government, first trying to destabilize the government um, economically, then politically, financing opposition, financing um, illegal and terrorist acts in Chile. That information is what gave us the conviction that the overthrow of the Yende government probably would not have occurred 
had it not been for U.S. covert intervention. Now, that is something which still is a wound in Chile. It's a, it is obvious that there was a political conflict in Chile at the time. But what created the condition for the breaking of democracy was this covert action. In the following years, there were many brave members of Congress who accompanied the Chileans who fought for democracy. Senator Tom Harkin was one of them. Kennedy and many others accompanied us. George Miller um, and many other um, House of Representatives. But this resolution which is being put forth today has an additional value. And I think it's very important to underline its importance because it will say, if approved, that the Congress as a body recognizes, one, that the use of uh, covert actions is unacceptable, that the use of violence is unacceptable as a mechanism of resolution of conflict of any type. And it states that there's a um, conviction of profound regret of what has happened. It is a way of recognizing U.S.'s responsibility in what happened in Chile, also in other countries. But in the case of Chile, it's very important because what occurred is that the Allende government came to power through a democratic process, a fully democratic process. Chile was one of the most stable democracies in Latin America in Latin America till 1973. We have recovered our democracy. We're working on it day to day. But to have this statement by National Congress, I think, not only helps to get history straight, it's a recognition of many people, many movements, many actors in the U.S., who do not accept the use of violence internally or externally to resolve conflicts. I think it's uh, an incredible importance, not only for Chile, but I think it's also important for internal U.S. policy, the way we have to, as humanity, as mankind, and within each of our countries, how we have to get things done. And could you tell us in the in a brief few seconds that we have left for this segment, uh, the there was a, a national search uh, plan approved recently by the Chilean government to search for people who disappeared, who were disappeared during the Pinochet dictatorship. What remains to be done in this area? I think that the importance of um, President Boric's initiative is twofold. Firstly, this is not a responsibility of relatives alone. It can't be that those who are victims are the only ones responsible for looking for their relatives, searching for their relatives, getting information regarding what happened to the relatives, which in the great majority were persons under 30 years of age. The first importance of Borch's uh, announcement is that this will be a public, a state agency responsibility responsibility to search, to, to find, to discover what happened beyond the judicial branch. Secondly, it's a way of recognizing that there's a state responsibility in what occurred. They were state agents, agents of the state, persons who worked for the government, a dictatorship by all means, but for the state at that point, and hence the state will accompany the families, the relatives, till they get justice done. And the trying to find out what happened. Now, we have some versions in Chile of what has happened to some of those 
bodies to some of those persons is horrific. Some were uh, thrown to the oceans with uh, railroad rails tied to their bodies. There are other uh, versions of some of the corpses or bodies that were uh, uh, unburied at one point, put together and bombed literally the bones to shreds. Um, there are many versions of this tape. That is what has to be set as an official and judicial reality, a story, version, so that the families can find closure regarding what happened to their relatives. Juan Pablo Letelier, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Former member of the Chilean House and Senate for 32 years, was in high school when his father, Orlando de Letelier, was assassinated with U.S. activist Ronnie Moffat in a car bombing September 21st, 1976, on Washington, D.C.'s Embassy Row. Next up, as the United States marks National Hispanic Heritage Month, we speak to two historians about a brewing controversy over the creation of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino, back in 30 seconds. Donde pongo lo hallado En las calles los libros, la noche, los rostros en que te he buscado Donde pongo lo hallado En la tierra, en tu nombre, en la Biblia, en el día que al fin te he encontrado ¿Qué hago ahora? What Do I Do Now? by Silvio Rodriguez. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to look at a brewing controversy at the Smithsonian Institution over plans to build a National Museum of the American Latino. In 2020, Congress passed funding to create the museum, along with an American Women's History Museum. But there's been a deep divide in Washington over how Latinos should be portrayed in the museum. Last year, the museum opened a temporary exhibit inside the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. The exhibition is called Presente, a Latino History of the United States. Republican lawmakers and other conservatives within the Latino community have attacked the exhibition, leading the Smithsonian to halt plans for a future exhibition on the Latino civil rights movement of the 1960s. In its place, the Smithsonian is now planning an exhibition on salsa and Latin music. This fight is exploding into public view in the midst of National Hispanic Heritage Month, which runs from September 15th to October 15th. This is Jorge Zamanillo, the founding director of the National Museum of the American Latino, giving a brief tour of the current exhibit in a video posted by the Smithsonian. Well, Latino history is American history. And to tell that full story and to tell a full history, we need to acknowledge our colonial past. So here we feature a portrait of Pope, the sculpture. He's a Tiwa leader, uh, organized the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. We feature uh, Torpurina, which is a medicine woman that was opposed to colonial rule. So these are important stories to feature and highlight how important they are in shaping our future. And these communities were around for hundreds of years before European colonization. So that's important on how that led to shaping our history. Lulu and Presente, we further explore how racism and colorism developed during the colonial period. And we have a few examples in Puerto Rico that illustrate this point for visitors. 
1973 poster by Agustin Marin emphasizes that role of black Puerto Ricans in the abolition of slavery on their island in 1873. We can also find deep historical meaning in Latino music and dance traditions. This outfit belonged to Tata Cepeda, an icon of Puerto Rican bomba music. Bomba is a family of rhythms and dances with African and Caribbean roots that has historically offered black Puerto Ricans a space for creative resistance and renewal. Bringing it back to today, here's a great photo by Joaquin Medina documenting the Black Lives Matter movement in Puerto Rico. For us at the museum, Latino is a label that brings together racially and regionally diverse communities. Representing both our commonalities and our differences is a core part of our work. That was Jorge Zamanillo, the founding director of the National Museum of the American Latino. One vocal critic of the museum's exhibition has been the Cuban-born Congress member Mario Diaz-Balart, who threatened in July to block funding for the museum. He serves on the House Committee on Appropriations and later backed down on his threat after he met with Jorge Zamanillo and Lonnie Bunch, the secretary of the overall Smithsonian Institution. After the meeting, the museum changed parts of the exhibit featuring a foam raft used by Cuban refugees to flee the country. The original exhibition text said the refugees were, quote, escaping Cuba's economic crisis. In July, the text was changed to add a reference to Fidel Castro and, quote, Cuba's dictatorship, political repression and economic crisis, unquote. Some of the first public criticism of the current exhibition came from a group of conservative writers who penned a column in The Hill last year, claiming the exhibit offered a, quote, unabashedly Marxist portrayal of history, unquote. The controversy comes as the Smithsonian is seeking to raise enough money to build the museum, which will cost an estimated $800 million. The New York Times reports $58 million has been raised so far. We're joined now by two historians who've been hired to develop the now-shelved exhibit on the Latino civil rights movement of the 60s for the museum. Felipe Anajosa is a history professor at Baylor University in Texas. He's also the author of the book Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, Church Occupations, and the Fight to Save the Barrio. Johanna Fernandez is an associate professor of history at City University of New York's Baruch College. She's also the author of The Young Lords, A Radical History of the United States. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Johanna Fernandez, let's begin with you. Um, what has happened? I mean, the idea that uh, this museum was going to be built either across the mall from the Museum of African American History or in the Tidal Basin. Um, but this, your um, Presente exhibit, um, has led to this kind of uprising on the right. Can you explain what the current exhibit is, uh, what the one that has been shelved is, for at least for now, that you and Professor Hinojosa have uh, been the um, creators of? Presente, well, thank you for covering um, this uh, evolving uh, crisis. Um, Presente is the current exhibition at the Molina Family um, Gallery within the American History Museum at the Smithsonian. It's an exhibition in waiting while the actual building of the Latino History Museum goes up in 10 to 12 years. What is important about Presente is that it really outlines the contours of Latino history, which are complicated. Uh, one of uh, the points it makes is that the largest Latino population in the United States was integrated after um, 
the United States war with Mexico in 1848, um, which is responsible for giving the United States its contemporary um, boundaries. Uh, half of the United States was acquired um, during that war, and the people who were in those Mexican lands remained in the now borders of the United States, and the integration of those people into a hostile America is part of American history. The, muse- the, the Presente exhibition also highlights um, the acquisition by the United States of Puerto Rico in 1898, um, and also discusses uh, the ways in which U.S. foreign policy and economic policy um, has driven people out of Latin America and into the United States. So what's important is that it establishes um, the question, who are Latinos, how did they get here, and what's their relationship to their communities um, and to the nation and the world. Unfortunately, uh, conservative Latinos don't want to hear that narrative. Um, they want uh, a narrative that emphasizes you, uh, Latino military service uh, and business success among Latinos in the United States. And uh, Professor Felipe Hinojosa, you come from uh, you work and come from Texas, uh, a state uh, uh, at the forefront of uh, some of the culture wars uh, that we're experiencing today. Could you talk about uh, how you learned of the the concern here and what you were told by folks at the Smithsonian about uh, what needed to change or didn't need to change in terms of the work you were doing? Well, thank you, first off, for having me. Yes, I am from Texas, I'm from the Rio Grande Valley, born and raised in Brownsville, Texas. That has shaped a big part of who I am. It shapes a big part of the work that I do, um, writing about and, and teaching on the Latino civil rights movement um, has been a centerpiece of the work that I do and that, that I've collaborated with other historians in doing. And I think in joining with this work uh, with the Smithsonian, I think for me, the the biggest joy and the biggest thrill was to be able to present these questions that uh, Johanna has just mentioned, the larger and broader questions of who are we and who are we as a community and what is our relationship to the nation were central questions for Latino civil rights activists in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, We worked on this exhibit, on the Latino youth movements exhibit with the Smithsonian for two years. We were 65% uh, complete. And the sort of rumblings that started to happen came immediately after the piece that was published in The Hill. Uh, I believe it was summer of uh, 2022 when that came out. Um, And there was some concern in terms of the kind of material that we would be uh, presenting. But I think for us, our major concern was just to make make sure that we were telling uh, a truthful story, a complex story, and a nuanced story about how Latinos have grappled with their relationship to, uh, to the United States. The critiques that came to us and what we were told in terms of what could be and could not be uh, included, I think were um, uh, alarming to us. And when the email came in November of 2022 that this exhi- exhibit was going to be paused or canceled, 
I think it confirmed our fears of the fact that the Smithsonian was not viewing the Latino civil rights movement as a broad enough story, as a story that would raise the kind of funds that this museum needs to open in in 12, 10 or 12 years. And I think from the work certainly that, that we have done and the work that we were engaged in for two years, nothing could be further than the, than the truth. What's bigger and what's What's more, I think, central than young people uh, asking themselves and their communities uh, how they can uh, make this uh, a nation that is better for all. And, and Johanna Fernandez, this whole issue of, of political leaders uh, uh, putting pressure on a, a museum to basically override the, the historians that the museum has chosen to develop its exhibitions? Well, I think we have to look at this conflict in um, the the broader history of the last 10 years when conservatives have launched a calculated and broad sweeping campaign um, to essentially eliminate the teaching of black American history, Latino history, ethnic studies, women's history and LGBTQ plus history uh, in the schools. Um, and now what we see is that through this um, witch hunt um, and by smearing uh, historians and curators uh, as, as Marxists, um, these conservatives uh, are using fear uh, to essentially push through their agenda. And now, again, this has reached a federal museum. Uh, and not just any federal museum, but the largest network of museums um, in the world, which is known as the Smithsonian. Uh, in many ways, this sounds and looks like a repeat of the Red Scare or previous moments of repression um, in the United States. So, Professor um, Fernandez, what is your response to them sending you this email saying they're putting your um, next uh, exhibition on pause? To be clear, Presente is now in that temporary uh, natural uh, American history uh, museum space. And the one you're doing on the civil rights movement is the one that is paused, um, saying that they want to appeal to a larger audience, especially because they're funding raising. And so they'll shelve the civil rights issue and do instead an exhibition on salsa music and Latin music. I think we have to say that there is no more um, integral matter in the United States than the struggle for freedom, democracy, and to redefine um, the United States as a country for all. That's integral and core um, to the American imagination. So to say that this issue is a minor one is really to not understand um, the very essence of American history upon which the American Revolution and its determination to fight for liberty uh, and the pursuit of happen happiness is, um, is core. And uh, Professor, uh, you know, Hosa, uh, I wanted to ask you in terms of the uh, in, in Texas itself, there clearly is a a very significant and strong conservative uh, population in the Latino community. 
See, so th- this is some. Uh, not, not only is this a, a a national ethnic struggle, there's also a class component to how people view history. What what's your sense of the why it is uh, so important to tell the story as you have uh, researched it and, uh, and and looked into it throughout your career uh, versus what some of the political leaders of your state uh, uh, might want. Well, first of all, I would say a lot of political leaders are often disconnected from the grassroots community. They don't understand um, what the community is asking for. I've been in the classroom for over 20 years. Uh, Students um, uh, are wanting more of this history, wanting to better understand how Latinos have shaped Texas politics, have shaped the history of the United States. Um, And not just Latino students, by the way. Uh, I'm talking students of all backgrounds that are very invested in telling a bigger story of American history and having a broader understanding uh, of it. The other thing is demographic change, the demographics of the state of Texas. Texas is now uh, a Latino majority state. And so to have those demographic changes that have taken place in the last 20 years uh, across this state, I think signal to us a tremendous responsibility to teach this history, to have a better understanding of the contributions of this community. We are not perpetual foreigners. We are not people that are new to this nation. We have contributed for generations to make this country what it is today, and in particular in my home state of Texas. Uh, And the idea is not to simply talk about a liberal versus conservative idea of history. The idea here is to tell a story that is complex, that is nuanced, and that gets at um, this idea of democracy that gets at how different people from different sections of society have made this country what it is today. And I think in particular, the state of Texas. I mean, there's a reason why Texas history classes fill up the way that they do at universities across my my home state of Texas. People love this history. They respect it. They admire it uh, as they should. uh, But we need a bigger telling of it. We need a bigger story, uh, a story that that brings in uh, marginalized voices, voices that have been silenced throughout history. And I think our exhibit was one small step to try to do that, not only at the state level, but at the national level. And and could you give perhaps some examples of of what you wanted to to, uh, put forth in the civil rights exhibit, especially in terms of Texas, a history that many Americans perhaps may not be aware of, whether it's the Crystal City uh, uh, uprising in, in, the, uh, in the early 60s or other aspects of Texas Latino history? Yeah, in particular, we were looking at um, uh, the, the ways in which Latinos in the state of Texas and across the Southwest and across the country have not waited for the nation to do something for us. We're not sitting idly by. Historically, what we've done is we've taken matters into our own hands for political participation. You mentioned Crystal City uh, in 1963, um, uh, uh, gaining a ground to the Crystal City's uh, city council. Uh, there was a group of five Mexican-Americans that won those city council seats. That was a huge, huge shift. And I think a call to the state of Texas that Mexican-Americans were serious about political participation. They went on to form La Raza Unida Party. They ran a candidate uh, for a governor here in the state of Texas. And that's the kind of history that we want to tell, one of agency, one of power, one that gets at how Latinos have not simply waited on, but have acted upon 
uh, to make uh, this country more democratic and more representative for Pro- all. Professor Hinojosa, we want to thank you for being with us of Baylor University in Texas and Johanna Fernandez, professor of history at City University of New York, Baruch College. And Juan, thank you so much for your book, Harvest of Empire, Stories of Latinos in America. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.